So what are you discovering as you practice mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of the heart? Um, as I awaken, I realize that I really have to titrate my feelings. Mm-hmm. And I watch how... How do you titrate? The feelings. Yeah. Because my feelings are feelings. Because there's a... Um, both greed and avoidance there. It's like, I want the feelings. Oh, it's too overwhelming. Oh, I want the feelings because I feel like I'm over here and my heart's a little more open. I don't want them. Mm. And what happened um, as I was walking a little, um, I watched that I was planning. You know, okay, I'll brush my teeth, I'll get the schedule out of the car, see what workshop I'll take next. And I was watching that, and then the, the Vedna of that was, my response to that was, it was comforting. It was um, a respite from the feelings. Mm-hmm. And I just said, well, there's nothing wrong with the planning. You know, it's nice that it's a respite. Yeah. And, um, and to look at not going entirely all the time. Right. to the planning, because that would be a complete avoidance. And then the acceptance of the planning led to more feelings, but in a gentle way. Hmm. Beautiful negotiation of being in the realm of your heart and your mind and um, being swept up, learning how to take a break, then regrouping, opening back up again, and then I know for myself I have to do that many, many times, especially when there's something that's fairly insistent and I don't have good perspective on it, that I'll either get tumbled along in it or I'll try to distract myself from it. And um, the power of this particular foundation of mindfulness as it develops is the greater orientation to be with something as it's occurring, but with perspective. And actually, the interventions over time get gentler and gentler, and we can actually withstand more direct contact with what's happening. And so the, the need to run away or solve or be swept up in, those tend to slowly give ground. Um, it, one of the places where it's most difficult to give tra- ground is where we all have something like our most traumatic relationship with life. And those patterns um, need a whole careful negotiation because the, the intensity, the quickness that they take over, the views that they can carry, um, it's not a matter of just being mindful. There's a whole skillful dance of titrating. How much? How often? How deep do I go? How do I learn to... Um, recover some perspective? Can I learn to turn it on and off? Um, There's a whole thing around more charged um, mental, emotional patterns. But then there's a whole range that actually we can get to know. And it's just a matter of watching the subtle plays. Um, And the more you take interest, the more you can kind of get to know all all the variations of the heart and mind. Other folks, what are you noticing as you bring mindfulness to the heart, to the mind? Doubt. Doubt. 
What's it like when doubt arises? What is like? What is doubt like? What is doubt like as a direct experience? Can it be known? Um, it's it's tricky because it actually, if you believe it, it'll take you on a ride. <laughs> What's the ride of doubt like? Um, they have good seats. <laughs> what kind of what kind of drinks do they serve on the ride of doubt? Whiskey. I was thinking of taking a little. I think you're taking a little ride of doubt myself later on and want to know a good doubt line, doubt airline. Um, it's interesting because I, I, I get, especially when I'm outside, I immediately go into a lovely place mm. in nature, pretty much always. And, um, and then there's this doubt that, uh, that maybe I'm just avoiding between allowing the doubt to make me question all this stuff and then also um, just hanging out in the moment of really a, a very pleasant mind state when I'm in the woods. Hmm. One subtle thing I've noticed over time, and this has really taken a long time to get to know different aspects of my heart, is that um, almost every state I in, I'm in, if it's not skillful, rather than the, the entire state being wrong, it's often actually a, an imbalance. So anger for me, when I wake up in it, rather than suppressing it, it actually is the fuel for um, justice. Doubt, when I wake up in it, it's the, the courage to be in the unknown and sometimes the courage to be humble. But if I don't have a good relationship to the beauty of humility and the beauty of the unknown, I start to not feel worth and I start to feel baffled. And then being baffled and not having worth begin to kind of beat me up a little bit. So the, the, sometimes it's good to get yourself out of that state because you're just tumbling in it. As I've had more capacity to wake up within it and so many opportunities to get to know it, rather than fighting it, one of the beautiful things about the Third Noble Truth and why the, uh, the uh, Third Foundation why it can be liberating is that if sometimes if we can wake up in the state itself, we actually don't need to intervene. That the very complications begin to untangle as we actually see what's happening while it's happening. So rather than me being free because I know how to fight doubt, I actually can wake up in doubt and realize, oh, what's lacking here is actually self-love. If I have self-love, I can endure the humility Without self-love, the humility turns into, I don't think I'm good enough. So I'm not sure if that, if that translates or if that's um, interesting.
it, in order to get there, I didn't try to practice that nuance early on. I needed to really know doubt and know how to get myself out of the tumbling in doubt. That was very helpful. That was knowing it and knowing how to intervene. But then you would always be having to intervene, getting very, like, no doubt for me. And there's another liberation that actually comes through the third foundation of mindfulness is being able to go down into the system and like, what is it made of? But to actually bring consciousness, awareness into doubt is difficult because it's unpleasant, it's confusing, it's disorienting. But over time, it can be like another neighborhood that you get to know and then not get to know it sort of like, oh, I know this neighborhood, I'm just stuck here. There's sort of a not knowing in the collapsing into whatever the state is. But knowing it and being intimate, it's just like, oh, in this neighborhood, there's no self-love. And that's why this, if I brought self-love, this could be a fine neighborhood. I love the outcome of being humbled. I often don't like the process of being humbled. But going from I'm the best thing ever, holy crap, there's, I could really fall from this, to I don't have to be the best thing ever. This is actually kind of sweet. That is something like lying on the floor, you can't fall any further. <laughs> so it's kind of like, ah, this is restful. But being up on your tippy toes in one of your great moments, it's like this whole balancing act there. So anyways, just to give some possibility that these are not only unfortunate experiences, as we get to know them, we're not just suffering more. We actually can, the intervention isn't how do I suppress all this doubt, but how do I recover self-love? Because that's what's actually making the doubt painful, is that there's not self-love here. But if there were self-love here, the self-love could merge with the uncertainty and the humility. And actually then it's not, it's not that hard to bring up self-love if you know that that's what's lacking. But it's hard to suppress doubt and fight it so it doesn't come get you. So over time, I've been able to not have to fight these states as much, but by knowing them, I can see what's lacking in them and welcome what's lacking versus trying to completely dismantle what's happening. Is that, yeah. And so I found that, I found that in almost everything, like waking up in grief, to have a heart that cares that much is a beautiful thing. Not being able to endure how much the heart is caring can make it a burden to care that much and then it's oppressive to care that much about loss. But having a heart that doesn't care about loss isn't freer. And so having a heart that's like, oh, this grief is immense caring about the loss. I just can't, endure, I can't be conscious in it. And so then the intervention is how do I, how do I honor the heart that cares this much? And I found that there is a much more kind of liberating relief. So all of these states, when we wake up into them, we find that the interventions actually don't have to be as um, 
blunt, that there's, there's something happening, it's just an imbalance. Check it out. Check it out in any state you find yourself in. I'm going to go over here first. One of the insights I have when we were sitting earlier, I've been working with a lot of obsessing on the retreat. Um, obsessing. obsessing, yeah. And um, it was really helpful to look into that more deeply and just kind of give it the attention it wanted and be like, what is this really like? And um, what kind of came to me was it's like the obsession or the hunger or the desire is, I don't know, it's like what I actually want is something real made out of like earth or water, but the obsessing or the desire is like a fire. It's like trying to eat a cloud. Like I realized I'm just like trying to get sustenance from chasing after this thing that's just so not real. Like I'm looking in the wrong place for my nourishment or my sustenance. I'm never going to be able to get it. Yeah. This fantasy from this cloud, like trying to devour a cloud. So that helped to calm the obsessing and let it um, kind of subside, which was really cool. And um, yeah, it's been bothering me less. And then what came up next well, before we gallop on, um, <laughs> I, I feel the excitement. Um, there again, there's liberation, not even waiting for the fourth foundation of mindfulness. How do I, again, there's a possibility that more intimacy in a certain area, the very thing begins to untangle because it's the inability to meet it that is part of why it perpetuates. But by being in the middle of it, how many of you, how many of you saw the, the Matrix? Okay, well, for those of you who didn't, um, there are two uh, phenomenal, mo- there are a couple of phenomenal moments of the main character fighting these, these bad computer programs. And one time he dives right into one and just merges with it, and it itself implodes. So there's like the merging with it. Then later on, he learns to fight them. So he's like getting more into his own, like, I'm, I'm, I, can, I can stand my ground. But then the final moment, again, is emerging. So fighting your way out of these things is good to know how to do that, to take, take care of yourself. But there's another liberation of actually um, surrendering into what's happening and then finding that the thing itself falls apart from within it. Um, as opposed to having to defeat it or suppress it or get oppositional. Yeah, exactly. Like, take some of the power out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I think I'm actually going to leave it back. Great. I just wanted to ask, uh, the doubt part, um, seems like when we doubt that we're starting the process of inquiry. Like, that's, isn't that... Uh, <clears throat> it can be. There, there can be healthy doubt. There can be troubling doubt that has you ask more. The hindrance of doubt um, can sweep over you and you can be so baffled and weary and confused that it doesn't engender a lot more questioning or learning. It's just that the, the mind is, just cannot. It's so disorganized and so... Um, confused, and then it can start to kind of pull up fear and aversion out of the sense of being disoriented. Yeah. I found it really helpful when you were saying, um, what, if, what if this is just happening now? And it really 
was that I was experiencing my body, I was experiencing this buzzing that I have that won't go away in my head, and I started getting afraid about it. And then I thought, well, what about that? And what came to me was, there's really nothing that I can do about it, and I know this because I've looked into it, and, uh, and so it doesn't really make sense to hang on to it. And it went away. <laughs> and that's another example where the fourth foundation is where we more intentionally work with things that are uh, sticky or troubling but there again just knowing something better sometimes it untangles itself so again we don't have to rush in with solutions knowing something better some part of the problem begins to uh, untangle itself. There was, <clears throat> there was a time I was living up north of Seattle and moved up the, to the shores of the Puget Sound up there, just assuming that the West Coast was nothing but a bastion of, of liberal values, because that would have been my experience living in Portland. <laughs> the entire West Coast. But I actually moved into an incredibly conservative um, uh, neighborhood and I kind of like a snail pulled back in and I was like oh my god like I don't have anything in common with these people so for six months I kind of hermited in my little house and the problems were huge like what do I do with these people and how do I relate to them and I don't like the way they behave and so the problems were big then I got lonely enough to get to know them <laughs> and interact with them and there were still disagreements, but knowing them, the disagreements were so much more doable. And the actual problems we had to discuss were so much smaller. But in not knowing these people, the problems were huge. And there's um, beautiful stories of people doing incredible activism where you start with a very different idea of who your opponent is. And then if you can come together enough, you might find that um, there's a very human human on the other side of your dilemma with them. And some of the resolutions that are possible is when you can work more with the human being with in front of you um, than not knowing them. And, and because of that strong othering, the solutions are very polar, you know, and us versus them. So getting, getting to that actual possibility of, of seeing what, what's the, the human element here might be one way of de-escalating some of the way that the opposition has been um, strained and polarized. So again, some part of the problem might dissipate with being more intimate with the problem. The sitting and the walking? Or uh, the, both. the sitting. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't have that experience with the walking. Yeah. 
some of those um, are fruition settings where you actually put in your time and it doesn't seem that productive. And then through time, something's able to finally shift. And it actually is because of the time you put in that allowed something to shift finally. <clears throat> I have, um, I've had chronic fatigue for 15 years and what's frustrating is I can be very exhausted but I'll lie there in bed and my body will not rest. So I'm just like inviting myself to let go and then there's just this like and it's exhausting and then at some point it just lets go. I'm like, God, couldn't we have done that earlier? But sometimes I just have to be really patient with it. It's like, it doesn't want to rest right now. It's caught up. I've done what I can do. And then there's some point where it finally, there's there's fruition. But it's often not that I've done something any more skillful just before the fruition. It's a matter of patience. And that patience of not adding strain to the system, at some point, grace arises and and you can open something. And so to really honor all the steps that have led up to the graceful moment as well. Let me come a little further. I'm going to stretch my neck also. <laughs> Over here. So we'll scan from this side. Yeah. Um, so I'm still trying to wrap my head around, around the ignorance and delusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess my my question is, uh, 
So with, is that a good example of ignorance? Yeah. Right. And then with delusion, that sort of like misunderstanding. Right. So the um, that is those are great examples of it. And one of the problems is we either go to the poly words and have to build a whole understanding of this poly sound, or trying the English translations and find the English ones are they're good bookmarkers, but they're like ignorance. Like, what is actually ignorance? <clears throat> Avija, vija, is the knowledge that comes through actual study. So if you actually understand how something work, something works, that's in Pali, vija. And in Sanskrit it becomes vidya. So vija is actually study something so you actually know how something actually works. So a mechanic who really knows a car has vidya. The car is not confusing. If it's broken, they can fix it. It's a system, they understand how it actually works, and so people have true knowledge of how something actually works. That's vidya. Avijja means you don't have that. <clears throat> Often avijja means that you do have an, you're operating from an understanding, but the understanding is, an, is inaccurate. And that's a very kind of specific Pali, Pali word, avijja, that there is like, um, in classic Buddhist understanding, taking something to be permanent that is impermanent is an avijja. Like I'm, my eyes are working, I look at my computer, and I say, permanent, well-built, will not break. So the eye is working, I see it, <clears throat> feels like a lot of clarity. I'm not sleepy or baffled, or there's no cognitive impairment, but my actual belief system is not accurate. And so, permanent, this is great, this is great. What, it broke? So we get betrayed by our avijas. That's one type of way we don't have clarity, but it feels like we have clarity. So that's the avija category. And avija is a subcategory of moha. Moha is delusion. It's, it's all the many ways we don't have clarity. You can, you can feel clear but have a misunderstanding. Like, racial categories are important. We should, they should be reinforced. A lot of clarity but not accurate, not actually helpful. Or you can have um, other types of moha, other types of delusion where the cognitive process is actually not good so you don't have clarity because you're baffled, you're confused, there's, you're unsettled, you're sleepy. So that's why the moha category is large, and the avija is a subcategory of why there isn't true clarity. Yeah, it's just confusing because it seems like <laughs> the, the Pali word for ignorance lines up more with the, the, the Western idea of delusion, mm-hmm. and then the Pali word for delusion seems to line up more with the Western idea of ignorance. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and so many of those words weren't chosen, right? Some people have tried to get at the word ignorance is that you're you're ignoring the truth. So there's a a stance against what's true. Like it has to be this way. This is my view. Anyways, that's just you know trying to wrangle the English to to fit the experience. 
But if you, one of the things that I have enjoyed slowly over time using the poly instead of the English is that it, it puts the pin more accurately in the experience. And the English sometimes, it comes with its own connotations and therefore it takes longer. But I've been around it so long that I, in Buddhist circles, when we're talking about ignorance, I know people mean avijja, and I don't know that, and I know that they both mean um, hold, uh, holding wrong views, holding views that lead to suffering, thinking that you're le- you're on your way to happiness, but you're actually setting yourself up for suffering. So that's the category of avijja. Yeah. I was just thinking. I mean, you you mentioned patience, um, and I'm finding that. Patience is so helpful for me in this practice because it means I don't have to rush either to understand what mental state is occurring or rush like a desire for variety and change in the mental state. It's just like however long it's there, it's going to be there. And even doing the diet exercise last night with Vedana and watching my partner get to take the time to figure out and articulate what is their reaction to a Vedana was really helpful in reminding me that patience is mm-hmm. allowable mm-hmm. here. Um, and just, I mean, that's making me think about, like, in the outside world, outside of retreat time, how sad it is that patience is not something that's really built into our society. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thinking also about friends of mine who are nursing assistants or people who are working with uh, especially folks in elderly care homes and there's this beautiful like you're saying wise collective uh, approach to Vedana which is a hospice kind of model which allows for patience and spaciousness but then the people who are actually employed to take care physically of folks who are ailing often are really like understaffed and rushed and it's just so Sad. I was connecting with that feeling of like, it's so important to have the, the spaciousness and freedom to be patient with what's arising, but our society usually is very much against that or built to thwart it in some way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to... Um, <clears throat> we're, my, my dad's a Marxist, and so I have a lot of Marxist beliefs about capitalism and to go to um, Burma it's just fascinating to be like in a village model where people have enough to get by and they're not trying to get much more than they need to get by once they have enough to get by the rest is a little bit more whatever they want to do with the day and it's not everybody in your family has to produce and earn a lot which means that there's usually a lot more people around to take care of things. So as things arise in a village, not everybody's so maxed out right up to their brink with their own employment and personal needs that there isn't actually flexibility to take care of something when it happens. And it's the weirdest thing to like walk through a Burmese town and say, ask somebody, hey, I just want a second of your attention. Can you tell me where 
how they're like, I will take you there. But no, you're, I mean, how would you have time to take me somewhere? You don't even know me. Looks like you're busy. It's like, oh no, we're not busy. And it's like, and it's like yeah, you know, this person's ordered food, but they get a little half hour later because they're fine with that. And like, you're going to take, you're going to take me somewhere. And now we're actually friends. And now I care about you and you care about me. And I want to help you. And like, wow, there's a lot, like nobody's right up against, and I, come back to America and I'm busy and then I'll see like a tourist. Can you, can you show me how to get to the Golden Gate Bridge? I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'd have to like describe the entire city to you and you look a little lost and like, <sighs> what you want to do is head here and like, good, good, okay. And I'm like, God, I would, I just don't do that. I don't, Oh, let me take you. And who are you? And where are you from? Wow, I get to meet someone from a totally different part of the world. And you're all being the picture with you and your family. And where are we going next? And aren't we, <laughs> are we friends now? And just like, I can let go. Not everybody, you know, it's an oversimplification to say everybody in Burma is doing that. But it's so common that like people have this like reserve to meet their experiences and what it's like to be pulled up to your your breaking edge and call that the norm. And most people are at that kind of like, well, kind of got it together, but it's, it's a pretty intense balancing act. I just don't run into very many people in Burma where that's the case. And they often have family members that are assisting. The family in the village is also full of your uncles and aunts and cousins. And so for better or worse, you know, everybody's kind of looking out for each other. This feels like there's a lot more resilience and flexibility in that model than everybody having their own car, own lawnmower, own Vitamix, own house, own this, own car. You know, it's like everybody has to have one of everything and the strain it creates so that you have that without very much uh, social fabric. Um, so that's a very... That's a very personal view on what I, what I feel you're describing. So that you have a hospice that's really good about taking care of people and then hasn't figured out how to take care of the caregivers. And a lot of nonprofits are doing beautiful work, but they're dysfunctional <laughs> systems because it's people caring a lot right up to their breaking edge. And then if they drop back to take care of themselves, they can't get as much done, so they don't get as much funding. And so they, everybody's breaking themselves and burning out. Then you get a replacement executive director who's coming in until they're burned out. And someone else comes in until they're burned out. That's, that's uh, not sustainable. And yet it's, it's our ambitious model. Um, which is a great thing that people feel when they come to retreat is you actually start to feel the unwinding of some of those drives and the simplifying and the contentment that can come from just being again. So I think this, this is why people are loving. There's something here for us, but how do we then integrate it? We've come right up to lunchtime, so thank you for your patience. I'm going to let people go. If you have a question, I'll stay a little longer. But That's the first. Yeah, that would be my guess is that if everybody could close the windows, we'll turn these things on and see if that helps for the afternoon. And at some point it won't. And at some point there will be bodily sensations, there will be Vedana, and there will be mental and emotional activity.